0: Well, this, morning, this afternoon, we continue in our exposition of the book of Isaiah, the prophecy of Isaiah. And we come to chapter 17, which we've read together a few moments ago. If you'll turn with me back in your Bibles to that chapter, we'll be considering together with the Lord's help, Isaiah chapter 17, the whole chapter. The title of the sermon is Forgetting God. You'll Notice in verse 10. Because thou hast forsake, because thou hast forgotten the God of thy salvation, and hast not been mindful of the rock of thy strength. Therefore shalt thou plant pleasant plants, and shall set it with strange slips. This inclination of men in all ages to forget God is ubiquitous. It's everywhere, it's constant, it's a threat that Uh, We face generation after generation, and as you read through the annals of history, you can read on one hand about nations, empires, kingdoms, and you read about their desolation. You read about them being dissolved and scattered and conquered and so on, and you've perhaps read about their former glory places like the ancient civilizations of Assyria and Babylon and the Medes and Persians and Greeks and Romans, but subsequently as well. You think to yourself, how did all this come about? How did that glory end in this grimy desolation? Likewise, we can say the same about God's people, about the church. And when you're reading church history, of course, you're reading the heart of history. And there we, we read about days of triumph and blessing and expansion and great glory being brought, brought to God and kingdom kingdom advance. And then we read about times of Difficulty. right? We read about times that are really characterized by desolation, the De- spiritual declension, departures, emptiness. We end up with hollow shells with no power. Witness has grown dim. You think, well, how how did this happen? How do you get from those days of triumph to these days of tragedy? And the answer to these kind of questions is given to us. It's, we have to know our book. We have to know the Bible. The Bible supplies us with the answers. It supplies us with the patterns. It supplies us with uh, the seeds of disintegration and the root problems that can be identified and then traced out uh, as they they unfold. And here we are in the book of, of Isaiah. We're in that section of Isaiah where we have a series of prophecies against, for the most part, the neighbors that are surrounding God's people. And so we had the burden against Babylon. We've had the burden that was given to Moab. We come here to the burden of Damascus or of, of Syria. And in each of these, woes are being pronounced. Uh, judgment is being described, along with a lot else, right? Along with reasons and and causes and exceptions and uh, elements of hope, and, and so on. And so we come in the course of our study uh, in this particular section through this series of, of uh, prophecies to the nations to chapter 17. And the theme of our sermon is forgetting God. We're going to note three things with uh, God's help this afternoon. First of all, uh, the glory is departed. So verses 1 to 5, we see that the glory is departed, the end of verse three, for example, uh, they shall be as the glory of the children of Israel, saith the Lord of hosts, and in that day it shall come to pass that the glory of Jacob shall be made thin, and the fatness of his flesh shall wax lean. But it opens with the words, the burden of Damascus, a reminder, uh, especially to the children, Damascus is the capital, city of Syria, right? So Syria is the nation that is north, immediately north of Israel, somewhat a little bit to the northeast and then going across to the, the north. So it's the capital of uh, that, that land. Now we still have a, a nation called Syria today, don't we? And there's still a, a city called Damascus uh, in the nation of, of Syria, a very ancient city going all the way back to Old Testament uh, times, but what do we descri- what do we see the Lord describing? Where this this bastion of strength and and uh, triumph and victory and so on. It's described in verse one as a ruinous heap, that the Lord is going to to drop his hammer of judgment upon Syria, and what is you know like a glorious palace with all of its you know bulwarks like a castle and all of the intricacies and art and all that. Would come with that, it's shattered to smithereens. It's beaten down to the dust. It's a heap of rocks. In verse 2, it's described in language of loneliness, being abandoned, of being left desolate. And all of this is reinforcing both to Damascus as well as to God's people who are receiving. Uh, the word of God from the lips of Isaiah inspired under the Holy Spirit, that without God, we are also without hope in this world. To use the language of the New Testament, to be without God and without hope in this world. There is no hope. There is no prospects, no future, no confident expectation of anything good if detached from God, to turn from God, to rebel against God, to be at war with God, is to put oneself in a trajectory that leads to doom, that leads to a ruinous heap. But you'll notice here that right on the heels of that in verse 2, we read, the fortress also shall cease from Ephraim. Now, Ephraim is another word for Israel, specifically for the northern kingdom, for the ten tribes of Israel. It's shorthand, right? It's a synonym for those ten tribes, for the northern kingdom of of Israel. And we're told that the glory of, of Ephraim and the glory of Damascus is going to wax thin, right? This is reminiscent, isn't it? The language reminds us almost immediately of the days of Eli. And remember, his two sons die; he falls over and dies. His daughter-in-law gives birth. She looks at the fact that the ark of the covenant has been taken away and put into foreign hands, to hostile hands, and she names the child born Ichabod, which means the glory is departed. And that's that's the picture that that's given here that their glory is going to be like the the so-called glory of of Israel, this departing glory, this glory that is thinned out, evaporates and dissolves before their their very eyes. But the thing that's even perhaps more striking in verses 1, 2, 3, and 4 is that Ephraim, Israel, is being lumped in with Syria, right? Syria is has been the Uh, the archenemy of the Ten Tribes, a nuisance. They've been constantly, previously, at, at war with them. And then, of course, latterly, they have gone into cahoots with them. They've drawn alliances with them. They've formed mergers with them. But for God to come and to lump together Syria and Israel is a rebuke that would have been considered extremely offensive to Israel because the Lord is, in essence, saying to his own people, you're no better because you're no different than the heathen. You're no different than the heathen. How did this come about? Because the Northern Ten Tribes had engaged in entangling alliances with Syria. They had engaged in unholy alliances, a common confederacy with these enemies of God. And having done so, they share in a common destiny with them. They share the fruits and consequences that come. They made themselves dependent on Syria in order to help them in fighting the southern kingdom of Judah, in order to help defend them against the threats of Assyria, and so on and so forth. They've depended upon them and now they have a share in the destiny with them. Well, this is offensive to them, but it is unveiling for us, doesn't it? It unveils for us the principle that lies behind it, right? This is the cost of worldliness. This is the cost of entangling alliances, of a common confederacy between the people, the professing people of God, the church, and, and the world. When, when, when the Lord's people blend, when they mix, whether in life or as church, with the world, when they begin to mimic the world, when they begin to adopt the world's mentality and vocabulary and the world's ways, when they begin to mimic that, there's a likeness that appears. The church or the individual Christian begins to have a spiritual likeness to the world. And is it any wonder then that when the Lord is bringing his rebukes and warnings of judgment, that those would come to his own as well as to the world who is so much like them? So many want the world Without the price tag. Many within the professing church of the Lord Jesus Christ, they want the world without the cost. They want to be able to enjoy uh, the enticements and worldly ways and be able to have some sort of insurance in, in at least a visible connection to Christ and His church and thereby have the best of both worlds and to escape the consequences that come from that. And this passage among a whole host of others says you can't, you don't, you won't. So it's a warning, isn't it, for the church in, in every age. The danger of the glory departing, the glory of God's people, glorious things are spoken of thee, Zion, O city of God, as we sing in the Psalms. But that glory is the glory of God, which is born by the church, the glory of God, which is reflected in the church so that the Lord is the one who's seen. The Lord is the one who is head and king. The Lord is the one who is magnified among his people because of their attachment to him and devotion to him and unqualified allegiance to him. But in leaving him, forgetting him, as we'll see, the glory departs. And so in verse, verses, uh, the verses that uh, follow there, he, he speaks uh, about, um, and it shall be as when the harvestman gathereth the corn and reapeth the, ear, the ears with his arm, and it shall be as he that gathereth ears in the valley of Raphaim. The point is that there is a measure of fruitlessness they are famished. I mean, it's using economic language, right? This, in an agrarian society, an agricultural uh, country, this is money in the bank, right? Stuff in the field is equivalent to what we would think of as, as money in the bank. So it's fruitlessness, they're famished. And of course, who's going to do this? It will be Assyria. So children, don't, don't confuse the two, right? We have Syria, S Y. R-I-A, and then Assyria, right? These are two different people. Assyria is that nation that's immediately before, uh, just north of, of, of Israel. Assyria is even further beyond them, right? A large empire, a significant empire that ends up coming in and destroying Syria, destroying the 10 tribes, and then taking, in, in the year 722 BC, taking the 10 tribes into, into exile, right? So this is Assyria. They will eventually be conquered by Babylon, who will in turn be conquered by the Medes and and the Persians. And so here are the 10 tribes, which probably reached their zenith, maybe under King Jehu. And then after that, we have a whole series of murders, of assassinations, and there's been this growing deterioration all because of their departure, their idolatry, their turning from the Lord, as we'll see more in a moment. But it leads to the glory departing. Secondly, We have both repentance and ruin in verses 6 to 11. We have both repentance and ruin. So these two things are held together. There's something twofold here. In verses 6 to 8, it's describing the repentance of individual people. A select number of individuals repent. And then in verses 9 to 11, it's describing the ruin corporately. Of the, of the people as a whole. So you have wide-scale ruin, and within that, you have a minority, a remnant, who is, who is repenting. So look with me at verses 6, 7, and 8. There you see the, the side of repentance, individual repent, repentance. There's a remnant here. Yet, he says, gleaning grapes shall be left in it. As the shaking of an olive tree, two or three berries in the top of the uppermost bough, four or five in the outmost fruitful branches thereof, saith the Lord of hosts. He's speaking of a remnant, gleaning, right? Gleaning grapes, children gleaning. This, this whole concept comes from uh, the Old Testament law. And so the Lord decreed that when they were harvesting, they would go out and they would reap the fields. And so the bulk of all of the produce would be brought in. But then there would always be some some left along the edges that wasn't harvested, or there'd be some that fell in the process of harvesting and laid on the ground. And they were to leave that. And then people were allowed to come in behind them after the bulk of the harvest was done, and they were allowed to glean. So they were allowed to go into the field and pick up the little bits and pieces on the edges and, and the stuff that was dropped and so on, and take that home for, for themselves. In fact, we had gleaning laws in America. Indeed, when I was a child, believe it or not, growing up, we lived in, a, in the country, and those laws were still in effect. And I would go out with my, with my parents, you know, and they would have come through with machines in our day, of course, and reaped the, you know, I remember green beans, for example, reaped the fields, but then, of course, they can't get the machine all the way up against the edge. And so we go out and just, gather some of that together. The farmers were happy for us to do it. It was you know, part, of the, part of what was permissible. So that's the image that's being, that's being given to us. And even the image here of the olive tree, right? They would pick all of the olives on the, the lower part of the tree and they would gather all of that together. They're going to make olive oil and so on and so forth. But then in order to get the ones at the top, they would shake it, which is what's being described here. They would sh- try to shake the rest of the olives out of the top, in order to gain, in order to to get them. But then, of course, there'd always be some left at the top, or some left in the outermost branches. That's what's being described. So this is imagery that the Lord is using, very familiar uh, to them, in order to describe a remnant. So here are a group of people, a select group, who in the midst of all this spiritual chaos, in the midst of compromise, in the midst of capitulation, in the midst of worldliness, in the midst of entangling alliances, chose to stay out, who indeed heard the word and repented, who in fact received by faith what God was warning them against and turned from their sins and turned unto the Lord and indeed you can read about them. Remember how we've so often said you need to hold, as you're reading through the prophets, make sure you're keeping an eye on the historic books. And when you're reading through the historic narratives, make sure you're keeping an eye on what God was saying through the prophets at that time. We read about this remnant in 2 Chronicles chapter 30, and verse 11. Nevertheless, diverse of Asher and Manasseh, and of Zebulun humbled themselves and came to Jerusalem. And so they humbled themselves, they repented, they they came under the Lord's hand and they forsook everything in order to go to the place of God's promised presence, which wasn't in the 10 tribes, nor in Syria, but in Jerusalem. You think about it, right? They have they have land, they have territory, they have inheritance, they have all sorts of stuff. They have deep, deep roots that have been there now at this point in 2 Chronicles 30 for a long time, the allotments that were given to their tribes, Asher, Manasseh, and so on, and heritage and everything else that belonged with it. They walked away from all of that and relocated themselves to the place of God's promised presence. They were the language of, I think, the prophet Amos, snatched like brands from the fire. Language used also in the New Testament. So here are a faithful few. In the days of spiritual declension and debauchery and rebellion and disobedience, like in the days of Elijah, there were 7,000 who did not bow their knee to Baal. So here, you think in the New Testament, There's that small band, 120, in the upper room after the ascension of our Lord. Right here you have a remnant. And what's characteristic about them? Verse 7, at that day shall a man look to his maker, and his eyes shall have respect to the Holy One of Israel, and he shall not look to the altars, the works of his hands. What is this? There's a contrast here. Right, the, in verse 8, when it's speaking about looking to the altars, the works of his hands, it's speaking about false worship. It's speaking about idolatry. It's speaking about all of these, these sorts of perversions that have, have come in. And they're saying, no, we repent of all of that. We're turning our backs on all, all of that. We're forsaking it. We, we're not going to even look at it. We won't touch it. We're not coming near it. Instead, our eyes are glued on the Lord on Jehovah, on the one who's given us breath and life, the maker of all of us, the creator, the uncreated creator. And so their eyes are turning to the Lord. This is looking with faith and looking with dependence and looking with repentance and looking with submission to him. Right, They're going to follow the Lord. The feet follow the eyes. Their eyes being on the Lord mean that they're Moving in the direction of the Lord. It means that they're moving away from this worldly and, and false and idolatrous worship that others are caught up in. Right? We see this over and over and over and over and over again. Worship is at the dead center of everything. Why, why, why is worship so prominent? Why is every downgrade have at its core worship in, in the reading of the Bible? Why does every biblical reformation have worship at its core? Why has that been the case historically throughout the annals of, of history? And it is because worship is the, is, is the primary right, focus. It is the pivotal force in framing the piety of God's people. The devil doesn't need to get the church to worship at the beginning, it doesn't need to get the world to worship flagrantly false gods or to forsake the true religion or to engage in in gross and perverse forms of idolatry. All all he needs to do is, at the beginning, is to change their worship. Why is that important? Why do we sing about it in Psalm 115? You become like what you worship. Right, You have the idols we sing in Psalm 115. They have eyes and they see not ears, they hear not mouths, they speak not hands, they feel not, so on. They who make them are like unto them, the text says. We become like what we worship. And so the Lord places this at the core. And he says we have to defend biblical worship. We cannot corrupt biblical worship. We must turn from false worship because it results in and changing everything else, changing everything about biblical godliness, changing everything about, ultimately, distortions of the gospel, our view of who God is, we begin creating another God that's not the one who has revealed himself in the pages of scripture, and so on and so forth. So here are a group of people, and they are a remnant who are repenting and turning from these things unto the Lord. And yet, in verses nine to 11, there is nevertheless ruin for the corporate body. And so the repentance of this remnant does not alleviate the corporate ruin. That's reality. And that's reality all the way across the scale. I mean, you have one of the greatest reformations in the Old Testament was under Josiah, and after that, they still went into exile. These, of course, have gone into the southern kingdom, as we saw in Second Chronicles. They're not going to Assyria. But nevertheless, the Lord's people are taken through difficult times. The question is why? Why is it that there is ruin? And we're told in verse 8, we're told, as we saw, that the first problem is idolatry. There are others who are looking at the altars and the works of their hands and have respect for the things that they've made, the groves, the images and so on and so forth. And so the first reason is idolatry. This is sin number one in the Old Testament. The most frequently rebuked sin in all of the Old Testament, bar none, is idolatry. So that's the first cause. The second cause, we're told in verse 10, is because thou hast, forsake, uh, thou hast forgotten the Lord Uh, excuse me, the God of thy salvation, and hast not been mindful of the rock of thy strength. The second reason is the second most frequently confronted sin in the Old Testament, which is the sin of forgetfulness. The sin of forgetfulness is the second most frequently confronted sin in the Old Testament scriptures. And the idolatry and forgetfulness results in godlessness. Right, in verses 10 and 11, it's describing these plants that they plant, these strange uh, slips that they're, they're planting and so on. This is this is, seems obviously a reference to Ashtaroth, right? They had the pole and they would plant plants for Ashtaroth and they would be placed as groves and so on beside the altars. And Ashtaroth was the Canaanite, female god, false god, deity, who was associated with sexual immorality. And so part of the religion of Ashtaroth was cultic prostitution, right? Religious prostitution. And so you have gross immorality that is, that is, is being uh, described. And of course, God had told his people that they were to destroy all of this. In Exodus 24 and uh, verse 13. No, it's not verse 13. Exodus, yeah, 24, I think it is. Anyway, he tells them that they are to destroy the Baals, they're to destroy Ashtaroth, they're to tear down uh, the groves, they're to dismantle the altars, they're to burn it with fire, they're to, 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 to be a scourge in, in, in eliminating all of, of these things. But there's connections between all of this, idolatry, spiritual forgetfulness, not being mindful of God, and the sexual immorality. They're all tied together because they're all different facets of spiritual whoredom. Idolatry is described over and over and over throughout the prophets as spiritual harlotry, spiritual whoredom. And that's connected to forgetfulness. You know, when a person engages in adultery, they're not thinking about their husband or their wife. They've put them out of mind. They're, they're as it were, forgetting them entirely and engaging in this form of, 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 of wickedness. And so spirit. Sexual immorality, the, the 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 spiritual forgetfulness, the idolatry—all these things are woven together. They're all dimensions of this, this, this sort of spiritual whoredom. and yet you see it in the in the um, narrative portions of Scripture. So in second, I mean, this very thing, with regards to King Ahaz at the time, Second Kings chapter six. You know what happens? Well, in verse Second Kings chapter six. <clears throat> and verse 10, and the king of Israel sent to the place which the man of God told him and warned him and showed him. Uh, therefore, the heart of the king of Syria was sore troubled. Um, I'm giving you the wrong passage here. But the point is that he hears about what's happening in Damascus. And Ahaz goes, and while he's there, he sees this altar in Damascus, and he's wowed by it right? It's dazzling. You see, this is, this is amazing. This is beautiful. You know, this is spectacular. We've got to have something like this. And so he actually takes a sketch of it, and he gets the dimensions and whatever else, and he sends it back to one of the priests and says, I want you to make a duplicate of this Damascus altar, and I want you to put it uh, adjacent to the house of, of God. And they do it. They take that pagan altar and they build it in the place where God forbade that anything should be put other than what he himself had commanded, specifically warning them against bringing false altars and so on. And so here, here we see them. Here we see, you know, you see Ahaz, and it's, it's, this, it's this capitulation, right? He's, he's not wholesale forsaking you know, the Jehovah's religion, but he's deciding to incorporate, to expand it, to beautify it in his mind, which is terrible, wretched, but he's, he's going to incorporate some of those things into the, into the worship of God. He'll use anything to enhance what he deems helpful, right? So it's mimicry, it's mimicry, it's following the world, and, and the worship uh, uh, of God is aping what is found in the world. So, as, you know, things haven't changed, have they? I mean, things don't change in this regard. If you're reading the text and recognizing the principles that are being highlighted, it is for our. It's written not just for Damascus, but for our admonition, for our exhortation and encouragement as well. We're to connect the dots, and we have it today. I mean, you have Protestant churches, and you 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 go to the the worship. And you think to yourself, this is aping Rome, right? The mother of harlots, as the Bible calls her. Right? This is this is Roman Catholicism. You have this high church liturgy, and there are all these various components. Where did this come from? You didn't get this out of your New Testament scriptures. You didn't even get this out of Protestant or Reformed heritage. No, it's taking from the man of sin and, and incorporating these things that seem attractive and and sensate and and beautiful and so on, and bringing them and incorporating them into you know Protestant worship, or on the you can f- you know, f- swing the pendulum to the other side and you go in, and and Protestant churches and it's a rock concert. Where did you get this? I mean, you didn't get this out of the New Testament scriptures either. You didn't get this from the heritage of faithful churches either. You got this, you took your cue from the world. What's attractive, what's enticing, what's interesting, what's popular, etc. And you're bringing in the world into God's own house. The Lord says, I won't have anything to do with this. He says, because thou hast forgotten the God of thy salvation, not been mindful of the rock of thy strength. That language there, perhaps you're if you're really paying close attention, we read from Deuteronomy thirty-two this morning in our Old Testament reading. That language in the prophecy of Isaiah is being lifted from that very chapter. You go back to Deuteronomy thirty-two, perhaps you remembered or, or noticed it. Verse four, he is the rock. His work is perfect. For all his ways are judgment, a God of truth and without iniquity, just and right is is he or even at the end of uh, later on in the chapter in verse 31 for their rock is not as our rock even our enemies themselves being judges right so that's the language here in in um, in this verse back in back in isaiah chapter 17 verse 10 not been mindful of the rock of thy strength And so he describes, you know, again, desolation, grief, desperate sorrow, and so on. Interesting, because the the nations of Canaan, they had fortified cities. And they lost them during the conquest under Joshua and subsequently. Now Israel, the ten tribes, have those cities. They're acting like Canaan, and they will lose them as well just as Canaan did. It's not theirs by right, irrespective of whether they're keeping covenant or not. And so the Lord describes both repentance and ruin. Thirdly, we have the defeat of the victors in verses 12, uh, 13, and 14. In verse 14, And behold, at evening tide trouble, and before the morning he is not. This is the portion of them that spoil us, and the lot of them that rob us. So it's describing the defeat of the victors. He's, he's making references here, allusions to the fact that the Lord's going to bring destruction on Syria and on Ephraim. That's going to come through Assyria. But Assyria doesn't get a free pass. God is going to use Assyria to chasten his people and to destroy his Syria, who's an enemy. He's going to use them for his purposes, as he's sovereignly orchestrating everything, but they're not off scotch free either because of their rebellion and idolatry and wickedness and uh, things that they're, they're perpetrating and so on. So he says in verses 12 and 13, you know, they're like an overwhelming flood. I mean, if you've ever stood, for example, at, you know, gotten on the boat at the base of Niagara Falls or something, right, the volume of water coming over that falls, something like it, right, it's almost deafening. You can't hear anything. You're standing next to your brother, sister, friend, wife, whoever, uncle, and you're like having to shout at them in order for them to hear you. So loud is is the noise. And the volume of water is overwhelmingly powerful, right? We generate, we literally generate power with this sort of thing, but it's destructive power as well, you know, absolutely destructive power. And so here are these, here's this noise, right, that is coming. Like the, the rushing of nations, the rushing like rushing of mighty uh, or many waters. And so here is Assyria, and they're going to they're gonna wash over, as it were, Syria and over the, the ten tribes, and it's going to be complete desolation. You see the floodwaters, and they come, and they're absolutely destructive. They'll take houses down and barns down and trees down and pick up cars and carry them in their wake and everything else, right? That's the picture. After the floodwaters go, nothing. So that's the picture that's being given here. Overwhelming floods. But notice what it says. The nations shall rush like the rushing of many waters, but God shall rebuke them. And they shall flee far off and shall be chased as the chaff of the mountains before the wind and like a rolling thing before the whirlwind. Just as the Lord came in the days of Pharaoh and Moses. And rebuked the Red Sea, dried it up, licked up every bit of every drop of water. So the Lord's people passed over on dry ground, not muddy, dry ground. And then commanded, and the waters gave way, and completely destroyed Pharaoh and his horses and chariots and armies. So the Lord is saying, He will he will rebuke these waters. And in the end, the Lord is going to decimate them. They, Assyria, will be full of themselves and full of pride just as Syria was so full of pride and think that they're invincible and think that they're unconquerable, and think that it's because of their own strength that they've done these things, not acknowledging that it is Jehovah who is behind them and God will humble the proud. He always does, right? Pride does come before a fall. And whether it's in an individual person, Who's full of themselves and lifted up? They're gonna be. They're coming down. It's only a matter of time. They're coming down. Or whether it's nations and empires who are full of themselves and proud. No one gets away with that. Every nation that rises up against the Lord in pride, down it goes. And so there's going to be, there's going to be, decimation. It's interesting because you read. We read later on in Isaiah before we get to chapter 40 you know speaking of days of hezekiah and so on in chapter 37 it describes the destruction of sennacherib's army here is here is sennacherib and uh so so you know powerful and invincible and you see the pride he's talking smack right he's 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 blaspheming jehovah he's mocking the israelites and all of this this, this, this invincible Assyrian army, here you see it fulfilled. In verse 36 the angel of the Lord went forth and smote in the camp of the Assyrians a hundred and fourscore and five thousand. And when they arose in the early morning, behold, they were all dead corpses. Here is Assyria. Verse back to chapter 17. Even tide trouble before the morning, he is not. This is literally what happened. And a single night, a single angel came and wiped out 185,000 in their army and woke up and the land is strewn with corpses. This is the Lord. Right? We sing about it in Psalm 76. In the opening of, of, of Psalm 76, you'll remember... There it says, you know, in Judah is God known, his name is great in Israel, and so on. And then it goes, there break he the arrows of the bow, the shield, and the sword, and the battle. He speaks about the glory of his people, the stout-hearted are spoiled, they have slept their sleep, none of the men of might have found their hands. At thy rebuke, O God of Jacob, both the chariot and the horse were cast into a dead sleep so here we see the defeat of victors so we saw one note of hope encouragement under the second point that there is a remnant a remnant who hears the word of God repents and turns to the Lord looks to him turns their face away from idolatry this great encouragement to us great hope great stimulus to us but here at the end of chapter 17 we have another note of hope don't we Because the Lord is saying that Assyria's power will come to an end. That the enemies of God who are used to chasten his people, they will come to an end. What they have is in essence, in the words of language of verse 14, they get a night. All they get is a night. But that night will be spent. And when it is, they're done. And so the church takes encouragement from this, that the enemies of God's people and all the threatenings and all of the fears and anxieties and all that, that is associated with that, the Lord says, he will rebuke, he will bring to it to its end. Or in the language of our Lord, the gates of hell shall not stand against the church. After all, Our warfare is not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers. Our arch enemy is not ultimately empires and persecutors and armies, though they're used and are enemies at times. The great enemy is beyond all of that, the devil himself and his host. And the Lord is saying, not even the gates of hell are going to stand against the advance of Christ's church when Christ comes as the great king in the preaching of the gospel, riding in his own chariot, conquering and to conquer men and women, boys and girls, and to advance the, uh, the, the breadth of his own kingdom at the expense of the kingdom of, of the devil. The church has reason for encouragement. And this is true, you know, throughout history. It comes in different ways. There are times when the, Lord, the Lord's people are going through very tumultuous times, and he brings it to an end through a positive change, you know, a revival or a reformation. At other times in history, they're going through a difficult time and he brings it to an end by the destruction of his enemies. Right? We see both. So an example of the former would be after the apostolic era, you have these waves of Roman persecution. Right, It reaches its feverish pitch in the Diocletian persecution, the last of those waves but here are the Lord's people and they're suffering and people are being beheaded and burned at the stake and hounded and stripped of all their rights and property and all sorts of things are are terrible, right? In these various ways, under Decius as well, um, full-scale empire-wide persecution. So the church is going through this time of severe persecution and then we get 313, Edict of Milan. And then you have the under Constantine, the legalization of Christianity in the Roman Empire, the archenemy of the Church of Jesus Christ. And the churches are liberated from being under that yoke and there are inroads and you end up with the Council of Nicaea in 325 and advance there in the kingdom defeating heresy and error. And it's not without its problems. That era also is mixed. But you can see how the Lord's brought relief you know, in, in that period. So the point is that God's people have hope in the defeat of all of their enemies. We sang uh, earlier today from Psalm 59 in a precatory psalm, the Lord will lay low all of those who are the enemies of, of the Lord Jesus Christ. But at the heart of all of this, we have the warning against forgetting God. It begins with the mind. Before the mouth before the hand starts fabricating idols, before the feet head away from the Lord, it begins with our hearts, our minds. The sin of forgetfulness. Right? We, are to, we are to be kept in perfect peace by having our minds stayed on thee. Right? Language from elsewhere in Isaiah. We're to set our minds on things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of, of the majesty in heaven. Right? Our minds are to be renewed. We are to be those who are captivated and focused on the thought of God. That's the chief thing. The glory of God in Christ Jesus, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, taken up with communion with him, fellowship with him, seeking him, knowing him, loving him, following him, worshiping him. Right? We do battle in worship. Biblical worship is a battlefield. We engage against the devil by worshiping God biblically. And we are pushing back the gates of hell every time we do so. And we're defending Zion against the encroaches of, of, of the enemy. We worship him, right? We have to think of him. To think, to think of him is to see him. To see him is to love him. To love him is to worship him. So we're to beware of forgetting the Lord, of not being mindful of the rock, the rock of our salvation. And the Lord bless these things to our hearing. Let's stand for prayer. O Lord, our God in heaven, we do willingly and wholeheartedly bow down and worship at the footstool. We come, O Lord, and acknowledge that We have one living and true God who is Jehovah, the triune God of Scripture. Thou art the living and true God. And we worship, magnify, adore, bless thy great name. O Lord, give us, we pray, uh, to never be forgetful, to be mindful, to be remembering, to remember the Sabbath day, to the Lord's Supper in remembrance Of Thee, in all that we are about, O Lord, make us a people who are captivated with the thought of of You, our God. O Lord, we pray and give us to follow hard in the ways of Holy Scripture. Deliver us, we pray, from every diversion, every temptation to entangling alliances and capitulation. We, O Lord, are left to ourselves, we would be tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine. We need grace. We need help. We need the Holy Spirit to anchor us. Oh, Lord, give us, we ask, that grace, for we ask it in Jesus' name.